Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. Well, it's about 840 BC and Yehu has just been anointed king of Israel by an anonymous guild prophet who was sent under the authority of Elisha to the Transjordanian fortress city of Ramot Gilead for just that purpose. Now this anointing of Jehu was essentially done by proxy. In other words, a few years earlier the Lord told Elijah that he was to anoint Yehu as king over Israel, but as the following days unfolded, circumstances were such that it never happened. Well, after Eliyahu was miraculously lifted up into the heavens, not to return, the man who witnessed it became the proxy to bring about these things that God had, had charged to Elijah, but had remained undone. Well, when the time was ripe to finally anoint Jehu, the prophet Elisha, for some unexplained reason, uh, issued yet another proxy and passed the task along to a member of the local prophet guild instead of doing it himself. Now, to briefly review the happenings of 2 Kings 9, we find that God's stated reason for making Jehu king of Israel was as a divine intervention for the dual purpose of ridding Israel of the Baal worship that had been instituted uh, as a matter of national policy by Queen Jezebel and also to destroy the wicked dynasty of her husband King Ahav, Ahab that had begun with his father Omri. Now Jehu was a military man. <clears throat> he was a superb and ferocious commander of the army of the northern kingdom. Um, he was respected. He was feared by his men. And when he was anointed, his top lieutenants enthusiastically endorsed him. But what we must also understand about Yehu is that he was ambitious. He was ruthless, and while he believed in Yehovah, it was a kind of self-serving belief, whereby he felt that it gave him the liberty to live and to do whatever he thought best and whatever made him prosperous and powerful. Nonetheless, he carried out the twin assignments with zeal. And not the least reason being that it assured that he would attain the throne quickly and that there would be no rivals left, alive anyway, to challenge him. As for the Baal worship issue, there's no reason for us to think that he had any particular problem with Baal worship personally, despite words to the contrary that came from his mouth that were mostly for show. However, the benefactor and energy behind the Baal cult in Israel was also the queen of Israel. And so ridding Israel of this cult naturally meant killing Jezebel. Well, 
attaining the throne along with eliminating all rivals and ending Baal worship worked together hand in glove for Jehu, much to his advantage. Now whether God meant for Jehu to become king over all Israel or merely to replace the king of the, the northern kingdom is debatable. But in Jehu's mind, being king over all of Israel, that was his goal. And the truth is that although the Ahav dynasty technically ruled only Ephraim Israel, the northern kingdom, they had also become closely aligned and highly influential in the southern kingdom, Judah, through the marriage of Jezebel's daughter Athaliah to Jehoram, king of Judah. Their son was Ahazah who became king of Judah after his father's death, and he also created a strong alliance with his close relative, King Yehoram of Israel. Now remember, we had two men, both named Yehoram, living and ruling at the same time. One ruling over the northern kingdom, one ruling over the southern kingdom. So when we left off on our last lesson, Yehu had taken a contingent of loyal soldiers speedily traveled from remote Gilead that was located east of the Jordan River to Jezreel where the king of Israel, King Yehoram, was still recovering from battle wounds at his country palace. And as luck would have it, the king of Judah, Akazah, just happened to be there as well. As Jehu was quick to point out to the king's messengers who were sent outside the palace walls to inquire why he had come, it was certainly not for peace. And when King Yehoram came out personally to confront Jehu, it is clear that he knew nothing about Jehu's appointment by God as the new king of Israel. And therefore he never suspected that Jehu came with assassination on his mind. But when Jehu hurled insults at the king and he made it known what his purpose was for coming, Yehoram yelled out a warning to King Ahazah who had come out with him and they tried to flee. But he didn't go but a few yards before an arrow from Jehu's powerful and accurate bow found its mark and King Yehoram was killed atop his fleeing chariot, King Akazah managed to escape, but not for long. Let's read the last few verses of 2 Kings chapter 9. We'll start at verse 22. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 22, that would be page 411 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. When Yoram saw Yehu, he said, Are you coming in peace, Yehu? He answered, Peace? With your mo uh, mother Jezebel continuing all of her cult prostitution and witchcraft? What a question! Yoram wheeled around and he fled, shouting, Treachery, Akazah! And Yehu drew his bow with all of his strength and struck Yoram between the shoulder blades. The arrow went through his heart and he collapsed in his chariot. Pick him up, said Yehu to Bidkar's servant, and throw him into the field of Navot the Yezreeli. For remember how when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, 
Adonai pronounced this sentence against him. Adonai says, Yesterday I saw the blood of Navot and the blood of his sons. Adonai also says, I'll pay you back in this field. Therefore pick him up and throw him into the field in keeping with what Adonai said. But when Ahijah the king of Judah saw this, he fled on the road past uh, Beit Hagan, and Yehu pursued him and ordered, Strike him too in his chariot. So they struck him at the Gur ascent near Yivleam. He fled to Megiddo, but there he died. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his ancestors in the city of David. It was in the eleventh year of Yoram, the son of Ahav, that Ahijah had begun his rule over Judah. When Yehu reached Jezreel and Jezebel heard of it, she put on eye makeup. She fixed her hair and she looked out the window. And as Yehu came through the city gate, she asked, Are you in, here in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? And looking up at the window, he said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three officers looked out towards him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. Some of her blood splashed up onto the wall and onto the horses, and she was trampled underfoot. He went in, ate and drank, and then said, Deal with this accursed woman. Bury her, because she is a king's daughter. Well, they went out to bury her, but they found no more of her than her skull, feet, and hands. So they came back and told him, and he said, This is what Adonai said through his servant Eliyahu from Tishbe. In the field of Jezreel, the dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel. Jezebel's corpse in the field of Jezreel will be like dung on the ground, unrecognizable as Jezebel. Now recall that some chapters back, we learned that this palace at Jezreel bordered on land owned by a man named Navot, who had planted a, a vineyard on it. The wicked and childish king Ahav decided he wanted that beautiful land for his own, to plant a, a garden on it. And so he went to Navot with a proposition. But Navot explained that by Torah law it was impossible for him to sell or give or trade that land for some other land. And when King Ahav went back to his bedchambers and pouted, his wife Jezebel responded by organizing some leading men of the Jezreel area to lie and to say that Navot had blasphemed God and blasphemed the king and thus Navot was executed and Ahav confiscated the property. But God cursed Ahav for this criminal action and told him that his own blood would someday saturate the soil of this stolen land. Well, that prophetic curse was now coming about. In verse 25, Jehu orders his captain, Bidkar, to take Ahav's corpse and to throw him into the field that used to belong to Navot. See, we learn that on that day that Ahav rode in his chariot to claim the deceased Navot's field, Jehu and Bikar had accompanied him. See, a king didn't go anywhere without bodyguards. And they had 
personally witnessed God's prophetic pronouncement of this curse upon their king. Little could they ever have imagined at that time that they would have become the ones to carry it out. And what a great vehicle this would be to propel their own careers. Naturally, Jehu's real goal wasn't to piously be God's instrument in bringing about the curse. However, from a political standpoint, he needed to publicly demonstrate that he didn't kill the sitting king just so he could grab his throne. Rather, he wanted the perception to be that it was because Ahav was such a wicked man and was the leader of a wicked monarchy that all Jehu had on his innocent mind was divine justice and the good of the Israeli people. And then the people would think that he hadn't done any of this unless he had been inspired by God's prophet to do it. Now we should notice that the fulfillment of divine prophecy doesn't always occur in the way we think it ought to. Sometimes it's entirely supernatural. Men aren't involved at all. Other times men unwittingly bring it about, having no idea that this is what they're doing. And like here, sometimes in the midst of some action or another, a man recalls a prophecy. And he realizes that indeed he seems to be participating in its fulfillment. Thus in our own lives, as we await many of God's end times prophecies to come about, we need to be aware that they can occur under any number of circumstances and be brought about in any number of ways. However, too often we as Christ's church seem to think that it must be either God's own hand that will reach down from heaven in some awe-inspiring miracle to bring fulfillment to his prophecies, or that if men are involved in these, or the men rather that uh, they're involved in these things, will be great men going about God's work, aware of their roles in fulfilling prophecy, and it's going to be all readily recognizable to the church and to Judaism. See, God's people throughout the ages have missed many of the prophetic fulfillments because of a, a predetermined mindset of what it must look like. Remember that when Yeshua came, the Hebrew people from the lowliest farmer to the relig Jewish religious leadership to the king of Judah were anxiously looking for the Jewish Messiah. So his advent was expected. It's just that he didn't come in the way or the form that they had expected. And so he was rejected. Is that prophetic fulfillment to their shame and to their detriment? Let us vow never to think that despite some teachers and pastors and self-styled prophets and writers who think they know exactly how many of these end times prophecies are going to look and happen that we can be certain of how it's going to all come about more than likely it'll be nothing like what they or we have envisioned but if we're stubborn 
and we only accept our own determination of how these prophecies are going to be manifested, then we will be counted among the majority who will have probably deceived ourselves. And we will also probably deny the actualization of these long-awaited events when they actually do happen. Well, after killing the king of Israel, Jehu set his sights on Ahazah king of Judah. They had to chase after Akajah as he fled to the south by way of the ascent of Gur that is, uh, that is by Iblim. And according to this account in 2 Kings he was wounded he fled to Megiddo and he died there. However 2 Chronicles 22 gives us a bit different tradition about his death. There it says that Akajah made it all the way to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, but Jehu's men found him there, brought him to Jehu, and he was executed. Now, there have been many attempts to reconcile these two accounts, but all of them are speculations, so we're not going to go there. What matters is that King Akajah of Judah was killed by Jehu a few days after King Jehoram of Israel was killed. And so, although the listing of the kings in the Bible doesn't say so, in practice, Jehu was king over both Israel and Judah for a short time, although apparently um, the people of the twelve tribes never quite saw it that way. For them, he was the legitimate king of the northern kingdom of the ten tribes, but just an interim figurehead in the two tribes southern region, uh, southern kingdom of Judah until a new king was coronated. Now verse 29 says that Akajah's reign in Judah occurred during the 11th year of King Jehoram's, Jehoram's reign over Israel. In other words, Akajah was so wicked that his reign lasted less than one year. In fact, 2 Chronicles 22 explains that not all of Judah even accepted him as king during that time. Now, no doubt that's because he was of mixed blood. See, his mother was Athaliah. His grandmother was Queen Jezebel, who wasn't even a Hebrew. And so, his even being legitimately of the tribe of Judah was in question. It seems that it was only the people of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, who accepted him, and the remainder of the kingdom was much less open to his rule. See, it's not unusual in history and in present day that the people living in the capital city of a nation have a different mindset concerning that nation's government and leaders than the remainder of the nation. Sometimes that attitude is more positive, sometimes it's more negative. See, here's a little tip for studying the, the New Testament based on that premise in it. Follow me on this. In Yeshua's general era, for example, the common people and the religious leadership that were based in Jerusalem had a very different mindset about King Herod and then his successor than the rest of the Holy Land did. They also had a different mindset about how to practice the religion of the Jews, Judaism, than did the Jews of other regions of the Holy Lands and even of the Diaspora. Thus, when in our New Testaments 
We read about the Judeans. It helps to understand this is not a synonym for Jews in general. Rather, it is specific to the Jews who occupied the Roman province of Judea, Judah. And even more usually, it was referring to the Jews who lived in the capital city of Jerusalem. Because they were more in tune with the civil and religious government that resided there. This is also why the New Testament takes great care to refer to Yeshua and his disciples as Galileans, not Judeans. And a distinction is also made regarding the Jews living out in the diaspora and in Samaria and in Perea and in Idumea as they also each had different political and religious viewpoints and practices than the Jews living in Jerusalem who the New Testament calls Judeans. So verse 30 continues Jehu's blood rampage. Now keep in mind that thus far this was entirely God authorized and Jehu was doing no wrong other than his heart motives for doing it all was hardly pure. Jehu went into the city of Jezreel there was an outgrowth of the royal palace there for the purpose of confronting Jezebel. She'd been expecting him. So when Yehu arrived, she adorned herself. And she prepared to meet him, hoping to either seduce him or impress him with her aristocratic appearance, trying perhaps to save her life or to make her demise quick and dignified and honorable. She was on the upper floor of her residence, and looked out the window to taunt Jehu, probably hoping her regal bearing and tone might intimidate him. She calls to him, sarcastically asks after his well-being, but then labels him as a Zimri, a murderer of his master. See, Zimri was also a military commander who had notoriously assassinated King Elah, of Israel and then took his throne. But Zimri's reign lasted one week before he was then assassinated. Her goal was to influence the thinking of Jehu's military officers who were looking on such that they would remember what happened with Zimri and how siding with this usurper Jehu could mean the forfeit of their lives if Yehu's fortunes were anything like Zimri's. But Jehu's reputation was too much to overcome, and Jezebel too hated, and his soldiers stood with him in solidarity. So she challenged, he challenged the bodyguards who were up there with Jezebel, up in her private quarters, to decide on the spot who they would support. They didn't choose Jezebel. So they grabbed the queen and unceremoniously threw her out the window to the paved street below. When her body hit, her blood splattered on the street walls and even onto the horses that were standing nearby. Jehu used his mount to trample on the queen's corpse to the point of dismemberment. 
and just to demonstrate the utter disdain that he had for her, he immediately went inside up to her quarters and dined at the royal table. All the while, the packs of wild dogs that usually roamed city streets ate her remains. After thinking it over, he decided he'd have her body removed and buried. But when his servants went to her, there was nothing left but her bare skull, hands and feet. And when they told Yehu, he remembered the prophet's curse concerning Jezebel that this is exactly what Yehovah had promised would happen to her. In 1 Kings 21-23 it says this, Adonai also said this about Jezebel, the dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall around Jezreel. There virtually was not enough left of her to bother to bury. And instead the queen's carcass wound up being spread around, we're told, like dung, like fertilizer. Partly as the dung that the dogs that had eaten her would soon deposit. She had received her just due, measure for measure, for her unbridled cruelty, bloodlust, and idolatry. The palace grounds where the dogs would defecate and her few remains were thrown was the field of Naboth. Everything has come full circle. God has balanced the scales. And it's not a very pretty picture. Such is the measure of God's wrath against those who harm His people who turn them away from their God and who set themselves to worship in favor of other gods. And God's vengeance is going to again show all of its fierceness in this completely ruthless fashion not too far into our future. And again, it will be mostly at the hands of horribly evil men. Some, like Hitler, who on some level believe that they are actually doing the Lord's work for him. Let's move on to chapter 10. Second Kings chapter 10. We'll read it all. There were 70 descendants of Ahav in Shomron, and Yehu wrote letters and sent them to Shomron, that's Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the leaders, and to the guardians of Ahav's sons. And the letter said, You have with you your master's sons, also chariots and horses, as well as fortified cities and armor. So, as soon as this letter reaches you, choose the best and most suitable of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's dynasty. They were panic-stricken. And they said, if the other two kings couldn't withstand him, how will we? So the administrator of the palace, the governor of the city, the leaders and the children's guardians sent this message to you. We are your servants. We will do everything you ask us to. We won't appoint anyone as king. Do as you see fit. He wrote a second letter to them, which said, if you're on my side, if you're ready to obey my orders, then bring the heads of your master's sons to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. 
Now the seventy sons of the king were with the prominent men who had raised them. And when the letter reached them, they seized the king's sons and killed them, all seventy of them, put their heads in baskets, sent them to Jehu and Jezreel. A messenger came and told him, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Leave them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. And when morning came, he went out and stood before the people and said, You are not responsible for the deaths of these men. Yes, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all of these? Understand then that no part of Adonai's word which Adonai spoke concerning the dynasty of Ahab falls to the ground because Adonai has done what he said through his servant Eliyahu. So Yehu killed everyone who remained from the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all of his leading men, his close friends, his priests, until not one of them was left alive. And then he set out and went to Shomron. On the way, he reached a shearing shed for shepherds, where he encounters relative, encountered relatives of Ahazah, king of Judah. Who are you, he asked. We're relatives of Ahazah, they answered, and we're going down to pay our respects to the families of the king and the queen mother. Take them alive, said Yehu. They took them alive, 42 men, and then slaughtered them and threw them into the shearing shed's pit. He spared not one of them. And on leaving there, he happened upon Yehonadav, the son of Rechav, coming towards him. And he greeted him and said to him, Are you wholeheartedly with me as I am with you? Yes, answered Yehonadav. If so, give me your hand. He gave him his hand. And Yehu took him up into the chariot. And he said, Come with me, and I want you to see how zealous I am for Adonai. So they had him ride in his chariot. And on arriving in Samaria, he put to death everyone that Ahab still had in Samaria until he had destroyed them, in keeping with the word of Adonai which he had spoken to Elijah. Next, Yehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal in a limited measure, but Yehu will serve him with fullest zeal. Therefore summon all the prophets of Baal to me, all of his worshippers, all of his priests. None of them is to be missing because I am going to offer a great sacrifice to Baal. Whoever is missing will not remain alive. But Yehu was setting a trap in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. Yehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, and they did so. Yehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not one man left that didn't come. They entered the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And to the man in charge of the wardrobe, he said, Bring out robes for all the worshippers of Baal, and he brought them clothes. Yehu and Yohanadab, the son of Rechav, entered the house of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search to see that none of the servants of Adonai is here with you, only worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. But Yehu had chosen 80 men to remain outside. And he said, If any of the men I am about to put in your hands escapes, it will be your life for his. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering... Yehu said to the guards and officers, Go in and kill them. Don't let one of them get out. So they killed them with the sword. Then, after the guards and officers had thrown their bodies outside, they went into the temple of Baal's inner shrine. They brought out the pillars in the temple of Baal and burned them. Finally, they broke down Baal's standing stone and demolished the temple of Baal, converting it into a latrine, which it still is today. Thus Yehu rid Israel of Baal. However, 
Yehud did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, with which he had led Israel into sin, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Adonai said to Yehud, Because you did well in accomplishing what is right from my perspective, and have done to the house of Ahav everything that was in my heart, your descendants, down to the fourth generation, will sit on the throne of Israel. But Yehud made no effort to live wholeheartedly according to the Torah of Adonai, the God of Israel, and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam with which he had led Israel into sin. It was during that period that Adonai began to dismember Israel. Hazael attacked them throughout the territory of Israel, east of the Jordan, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, uh, the tribe of Manasseh, from Aroer by the Arnon River, including Gilead and Bashan. Other activities of Yehu, all of his accomplishments, all his power are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Yehu slept with his ancestors and they buried him in Samaria. Then Yehochaz, his son, became king in his place. Yehu ruled over Israel in Shomron for 28 years. So much royal blood had already flowed. But that was only the beginning. Jehu was an enigma who was zealous in carrying out his commission to destroy every last member of Ahaz's family and dynasty and then to destroy Baal worship in Israel. But on the other hand, Yehu did it in his own strength without true fear or dedication to Jehovah, God of Israel. He indeed was a chosen instrument of God's wrath. But on the other hand, he was not a servant of God. Jehu was ruthless. He was Machiavellian. He would have set about murdering all possible rivals of Ahaz and Akajah's families, regardless of God's command to do so, since it served his political purposes and ambitions. So a God principle is that even obedience to God's commands done in the wrong spirit and with the wrong motives is evil. Verse 1 says that Ahab had 70 sons living in Samaria. Our complete Jewish Bible says 70 descendants, which is not literal. The Hebrew is bain, meaning sons or, or children. But descendants is really a better translation because there was certainly these were certainly not all sons or grandsons, but also probably included nephews and grandnephews. Further, the number 70 in the Bible is a round number, meant to be symbolic and not precise. The number 70 is the product of the number 7 and the number 10. The number 7 indicates perfect totality, and it's the divine ideal number. The number 10 indicates order and fullness. So when multiplied together, to equal 70, the number is representative of the whole. It's typological. And so 70 indicates all-inclusiveness. So the idea is that while there were around 70, plus or minus, male descendants of Ahav, each eligible in theory to become king, however many 
there actually were in existence, they were all living there at the northern kingdom's capital city of Shomron. All of them. That's the idea. So we find that the bulk of Ahav's family lived in Samaria. And so Yehu wouldn't be done with exterminating the Ahav, uh, rather the Ahav dynasty until those living up there were dead. But since Samaria was a heavily defended walled city, and taking it could be costly and time consuming, he needed to come up with a plan to find out who of the old regime would renounce their former allegiances and side with him. So he wrote letters to each of the elders and officials who had taken charge of one or more of the former king's male descendants. Now the Hebrew term for these officials is sar. It is a general term whose context can mean anything from, from prince to ruler to chief. Generally any kind of, of upper echelon leader. Thus these sar are men in various positions of, of, of leadership. Jehu, being a warrior, challenges these men to battle for the keys to the kingdom. The letters he sends to them say, well, you have at your disposal war chariots, horses, an arsenal of weapons, and a fortress. So, they should choose from among these 70 royal descendants in their charge, make one of them the king, and then fight with Jehu to see who wins the day and the right to be the king of Israel. The Tsar held a meeting amongst themselves and they asked rhetorically if two experienced kings, the kings of Judah and kings of Israel, couldn't defeat Jehu, how would they fare with a youth on the throne? So with self-preservation in mind, they responded to Jehu's letter with one of their own that effectively said, okay, we surrender. We won't challenge you as king. Just tell us what you want done and we'll do it. Well, in verse 6, Jehu gave him his terms. Each man who was in charge of one or more of the 70 princes was to behead them send their heads to Jehu by the next day. The city officials wasted no time. Did their dirty work. They put the dismembered heads into kettles or baskets. Sent them to Jehu who was in Jezreel. Jehu was nothing if not clever. By having these leading men kill all the king's descendants, they became co-conspirators in Jehu's consolidation of power. Now Jehu could rightfully claim he didn't kill these king's descendants. None of his own men did either. Thus he wouldn't risk a bad public image. Even so, Jehu wanted everybody to see that the house of Ahav no longer existed. So he had the heads piled up in two mounds at the city gates of Jezreel. Now, no doubt this also sent a gruesome warning to any who might consider hiding some stray descendant of Akavs, that such a folly would prove fatal. In fact, Yehu stood by those bloody piles and told the people that they were righteous and implied that he was too, even though he fully admitted to killing King Yehoram. But, he asked rhetorically, who killed all the men represented by these piles of heads? 
In other words, you people didn't do this. I, Jehu, didn't do this. It was actually Ahav's own servants who had, kill, who had killed Ahav's descendants in but a choice of loyalty. So, all that had been done, he says, was free of sin as far as the people were concerned and as far as Yehu was concerned. And all of this had been decreed through God's prophet Elijah. And so, Jehu deserved merit and the people's loyalty, not curses in their resistance for his actions. Oh, this Jehu was a shrewd man. He had deflected blame upon himself. He had made the leading men of Samaria accomplices and thus allies, willing or not. He provided evidence that what he had done was in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy and he established himself as the only and legitimate new monarch over Israel who deserved to be respected and feared. But verse 11 tells us something even more disquieting. Even addition, in addition to Ahav's dynastic family members, Jehu killed their friends. He killed their priests. Anyone that could be associated at any level to the royal family. This went well beyond God's command to Jehu to destroy Ahav's dynasty, meaning anybody who could, inter- who could inherit the throne. And that is a pattern that we have seen and we will continue to see for all those wicked men who God uses from time to time to punish his people for their rebellion. These men eventually succumb to their lusts for power and megalomania and they venture far beyond God's instructions so that they now make themselves subject to the Lord punishing them at some point. Not long from this point in 2 Kings we're going to see the infamous Nebuchadnezzar is but another wicked man that God anoints to punish his people but he goes too far. He gets too severe and eventually his kingdom of Babylon is taken away from him by Jehovah and it's turned over to the Persians as a result. It was time for Jehu to officially assume the throne. And the place to do that was in his kingdom's capital city. So, in verse 12, he leaves Jezreel to venture to Samaria, but along the way, by chance, he happens upon some relatives of the deceased king of Judah, Akajah. Forty-two of these men were on their way to Jezreel, obviously unaware of what had happened to their king or to the king of Israel. Second Chronicles 22 makes it clear that these men were nephews of Ahaziah. So they were indeed eligible to become king of Judah under the right circumstances. Well, we can get the false idea from the many English translations, including our complete Jewish Bibles, that they were headed to Jezreel to mourn with their other family members over the death of Ahaziah because many versions say they were coming to pay their respects. Actually, the word being translated is shalom. So all this means to convey is that these 42 nephews were coming to greet or to wish well 
their various family members. Now remember, they were related to both the king of Israel and the king of Judah who were, as far as most folks knew, still alive and well and staying at the Jezreel palace. This was a regular show of solidarity and family respect so typical and expected in the Middle East. Jehu couldn't believe his good fortune. He didn't have to venture south to Judah to try to round up these men who, who, who soon might have gone into hiding once they found out what had happened. Instead, they came to him like ignorant sheep to a slaughter. And it's ironic that the very place he crossed paths with them was at a sheep shearing facility. Yehu ordered them captured and immediately executed. And he left their lifeless bodies in the pit of the shearing shed so that passers-by on this busy highway would find these royal corpses and the news would spread quickly that the king of Judah's family is well on its way to extinction. From there, Yehu continued on his journey towards Samaria where he encountered a fellow named Yohanadav, son of Rehav. And then he proceeds to show him the greatest admiration and respect. Who, who is this Yohanadav? Why all the kowtowing and flattery? This man's identity is quite fascinating. And that's what we're going to look into next time.